Thank you so much, Bruce. It's always a privilege and a joy to be prayed for, so thank you for that. And uh, I know that that extends to all of us in the congregation, the privilege to pray for each other. So God's blessing and favor on all of you today as we, as we come together. As Bruce prayed, my name is Don. I'm one of the pastors here at Forest Grove, and it's my privilege to continue our series on kingdom culture. Now, I'm going to begin by taking you back in time a bit, maybe not that long ago to some of you and really long ago to others, but it was when I was 10 years old. And back when I was 10 years old, I went through a spell. Who knows how long a spell is? Maybe I not even shouldn't use that word. Anyway, a time in my life where I didn't like Sundays. Now, being a brought-up-in-church kid, that was not something you said out loud. In fact, if I would have been honest as that 10-year-old kid, I would have said, Sundays are kind of boring. So this was my experience briefly of what a Sunday was like through my 10-year-old eyes. Well, it all started with you had to get up early because, of course, you had to put on your Sunday best and your mom wanted to make sure that you were clean and that you didn't get dirty so you couldn't go outside and play or do anything. You just had to get dressed up and get ready and then you'd go to church. You know, and then you'd have Sunday school, which that was okay because at least you could hang out with people your own age for a little bit. But, and then the service, you know, that you laboriously sat through, not understanding most things that were going on. And then when church was over, it'd be like, oh man, I hope that we get to go out for lunch today. But often you would just get invited over to people's places back in the time when we used to do that. And as a 10-year-old kid, if you got invited over to people's house who had kids your age, well, that was really good. But if not, it was like, oh, no, my whole afternoon is going to be boring, having to sit through adult conversation and be nice to these people that invited us over. And then you finally get home mid-afternoon, and you think you're free. But no. As a kid, they talked about how my parents and the church, we talked about how Sunday was the Sabbath day. And the Sabbath day, from what I understood as a 10-year-old, meant that it was like this special day of church and, all, and not working, and trying to figure out this whole thing of not working and really what that meant. But anyway, Sunday afternoon was boring too, because my parents would be like, we're going to have quiet time, we're going to nap, and it's just going to be quiet around the house, because it's the Sabbath, and I'm going, oh, boring. And then to top it all off, at 6 o'clock when I was a kid, the best thing in the universe happened. It was called the wonderful world of Disney. And you would sit down to watch, but it would be halfway through when your parents would say, Donnie, we have to leave now and go to evening service. I know, some of you are so young, you're going, what? There were evening services? Yes, there were. And then we'd do it again, and then you'd go home, and it was... Go to bed because the school week starts tomorrow. So doesn't that sound terrible and pathetic? <laughs> but that's through the eyes of a 10-year-old. And I thought of that because I'm speaking on Sabbath today, on Kingdom Sabbath. And I grew up with a lot of Sabbath confusion. Now, if like me, you have a church background, you might have a different kind of Sabbath confusion. If you're newer to church or faith or just ex exploring it, perhaps even the whole idea of Sabbath is confusing to you. So let me see if I can give us just a little bit of context from, from God's perspective. So actually, Sabbath, or the idea of a Sabbath rest, was God's plan from the very beginning. It was actually God's plan in creation. 
So when God created the heavens and earth, in Genesis, the first book in the Bible talks about, about that, in a, in a, that, that he worked for six days, and then on the seventh day, or the Sabbath day, he rested from all his work. So if you go back to Genesis chapter 2, verses 2 and 3, and you'll see these words on the screen, it says, by the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing, so on the, um, so on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it, he rested from all the work of, of the creating that he had done. So the seventh day was, of course, Saturday. So Sabbath is really Saturday, not Sunday. So how did that happen? Well, basically, history lesson very short, Sabbath was Jewish tradition. And then when Christianity came on the scene, early Christians kind of practiced Sabbath in a way. But then, because Sunday was the first day of the week, and Sunday was the day that Jesus rose from the dead, Christians started to gather and celebrate on Sunday morning. And so over time, Sunday became the day of worship, and then they weren't sure what to do with Sabbath, but then like institutions and church traditions typically do, over the years, we just transferred all of the Sabbath ideas and Christianized them and made them like Sunday ideas, and all of a sudden now Christians had a Sabbath, and then years later, you had boy, some of that Sabbath, Sabbath confusion that I grew up with. What's this all about? But anyway, getting back to the history, it really did start with God's idea. Because when God created, he looked at his creation and he said, you know, I want to establish my creation in a healthy rhythm. Six days you work, one day you rest. This is my vision for my creation, that they would live this kind of rhythm and pattern in their life. So fast forward, later when God decided that his strategy would be to call a nation and have this nation be a testimony to the rest of the world as to what it's like to, to see a nation that follows God. And so God chose the Hebrew people, which became the, the nation of Israel, and he freed them from slavery and made them a nation. And what's interesting is that as slaves, there is no opportunity for rest in your life. However, as free people, as God's people, God wanted to establish his original creation idea of that rhythm in life that included rest, six days of work and one day of rest. And so God gave his, his people um, many laws and commands. The most famous ones are known as the Ten Commandments. And law number four was simply, remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. And so that was a part of their law and what they were to follow. Now, you would think that a nation would go right on. That's one of the good ones. That's an easy one to follow. And that the sad story is, is that God's nation didn't follow God's law, and they didn't even follow the law of the Sabbath. In fact, they got so influenced by the cultures of the nations around them that they just basically fell into greed, economic success, and everything else about push, push, push to succeed and be great and all of that around them, that they, they started to diminish the fact that rest was good. They stopped following Sabbath and, and understanding God's heart. And so over time, that nation, the nation of Israel, just began to implode and basically decline until the day came that they were defeated by their enemies and taken to exile. Now, after 70 years of exile, a whole group of these Jews came back to the Holy Land and once again reestablished their nation. And at that time, 
the religious leaders were incredibly passionate about the idea that this is never going to happen again. We disobeyed God, and so we were punished and exiled. It's never going to happen again. So we are going to be zealous and tenacious about making sure this never happens again. And their solution was, we need to follow God's law. And then they had this other bright idea. And let's add a million more. Because if there's a billion, million laws to follow, there's a better chance that we'll all stay holy. That seems ridiculous to us, but that's, that's the era where Jesus appears and starts to challenge them about a new kingdom culture based on him as king. And he upset everything with his teachings. Now, um, when you consider how these tenacious Jews and Jewish leaders wanted to make sure that the bad didn't happen to them again, and so they added so much to the law. Just let me give you a little example. So there was a Jewish commentary called the Mishnah, and in this ancient writing, there's 240 paragraphs on Sabbath behavior. Got that? 240 paragraphs on Sabbath behavior. Now I'm going to give you, show you one sentence from one paragraph of a list of prohibited work. So are you ready? You'll see that on the, on the screen here. Sewing, plowing, baking, spinning, tying a knot, writing, putting out a fire, lighting a fire, striking with a hammer, and it went on and on and on again. All of these simple tasks that were called work were restricted. Now, the law got so ridiculous that they, they even had all kinds of, of, of all kinds of fights over interpretation, what they could get away with. Just, here's just another small example, that one about tying a knot. So like if you were a sailor, f- fisherman, or a camel driver, you were not allowed to tie a knot on the Sabbath because that was work. However, you could tie a knot in your sandal, you could tie a knot in your belt, tie a knot in a hairnet, that was okay. But So again, it, was just, it got so ridiculous and legalistic that there was all kinds of fights over even, believe this, this this is incredible to me, they even had arguments over how much work could you do to help people in trouble? If you had to exert too much work to help people who were in trouble, that might be wrong too and break the Sabbath. And of course, as we'll read later in the scripture, that's the hypocrisy that Jesus read into and went, what are you guys thinking here? Anyway, that's the culture that Jesus came into And so when Jesus appears on the scene with the authority that he led in, with the authority that he spoke in, he made statements about the kingdom culture that to the religious leaders especially, but to everyone, they were radical and they were controversial and they were often even considered deviant. So the text we're going to come to in a little bit, in Matthew chapter 12, Jesus makes this bold claim, and you you heard Bruce read it already. But Jesus said that, he said, for the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. And then in the parallel passage in Mark 2 that Bruce read, Jesus said, the Sabbath was made to meet the needs of people and not people to meet the requirements of the Sabbath. Now, if you were here last week, Jeremy Martini from uh, Horizon College across the street spoke on the very end of Matthew chapter 11. And at the very end of Matthew chapter 11, Jesus basically gives his kingdom definition of what God really meant by Sabbath rest. And here it is, Matthew eleven twenty-eight to 30. Jesus said, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, 
and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus' definition of true Sabbath rest. When Jesus looked at the religious culture around him, he saw all he saw was burden, that the people were burdened by law and religiosity and legalism. And Jesus said, the kingdom culture that I bring is radically different. It's understanding the heart of God for you as his people, the heart of God for rest and so many things. In fact, this definition basically says that, that it's a rest that is given and a rest that is found. A rest that is gift and a rest that comes through relationship with Jesus. That's what God meant by Sabbath rest originally, and that's what Jesus now re-proclaims when he invites us to join his kingdom culture, to understand his kingdom Sabbath. So let's go now to the main text. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 12, and we'll begin by reading verses 1 to 8. So Matthew chapter 12, verses 1 to 8, says this. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry and began to pick some heads of grain and eat them. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath. He answered, Haven't you read what David did when his companions were hungry? He entered the house of God, and he and his companions ate the consecrated bread, which was not lawful for them to do, but only for the priests. Or haven't you read in the law that the priests on Sabbath duty in the temple desecrate the Sabbath and yet are innocent? I tell you that something greater than the temple is here. If you had known what these words mean, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the innocent. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. So Jesus and his disciples are, are back from a missions trip, a journey. They probably had already broken the law by taking too many steps. Yes, they had laws about how many steps you could take on the Sabbath. But the Pharisees, or the religious leaders of the day, were watching Jesus and his disciples very closely because they wanted to accuse them. And so here's Jesus' disciples, hungry after a long journey, and they're doing what's actually lawful to do. They, in, in, in the sense of, there was actually a a law in, in the books uh, that was a law really of mercy and justice for the poor that they were allowed to glean the edges of the fields if they were hungry. So they were, they were, they were at, at that level anyway allowed to do that. But the mistake they made, according to the religious leaders, was that they were picking up unharvested stalks of wheat and then they were rubbing them together to eat the kernels. I'm sure we've all done that at some point in our life, being from Saskatchewan. And... Uh, you know what they were doing there, though? That's threshing. I'm such a farm boy, I know so much about that. But anyway, I know, I know that that's threshing, and that's work. So the, the Pharisees, those religious leaders, are going, ah, they're working, they're threshing. Jesus, what are you doing? Condemn your disciples. Tell them they're not following Sabbath rule. But Jesus doesn't do that. Instead, Jesus gives them a little history lesson. He's going, you're thinking, yeah, Don, like Jesus did that well your history lessons. Anyway, I, I love the history lessons. 
But what Jesus says to them is he says, well, you know one of your heroes, King David, so he would have been one of the great heroes of the Jewish people, their greatest king ever. King David, when he was running for his life, he went to a holy place and the priest gave him consecrated holy bread that only was to be consumed by priests on the Sabbath and he ate it and that was okay. He wasn't condemned for that. See, Jesus is already hinting at them that justice and mercy trumps the letter of the law every time. And so he gave that example. And then he gave an example of, of their current day in the temple. He said, don't you also realize that all of your priests every Sabbath are working really hard so you can all worship? They're preparing the sacrifices and they're in the temple doing tons of work that should be against Sabbath law, and yet it's not because they're doing the work of God. So again, what is Jesus trying, trying to show them? So in the midst of him um, explaining that to them and prodding them, he makes three incredibly bold statements here, like really controversial statements that get these religious leaders so mad they want to kill him. So you got to know how angry these statements made him. So first he says in verse 6, after talking about the priests working in the temple, he says, something greater than the temple is here. Now, Jesus always spoke in just enough non-directness that they knew exactly what he was referring to and meaning, and yet he could say it in such a way that they couldn't right away accuse him of blasphemy. But basically, by Jesus saying something greater than the temple is here, I mean, I mean, they're looking at their temple, and they were so proud of this rebuilt huge temple. It was the icon of their faith. It was so amazing that, oh. And so for this mere rabbi, this mere man to say something here is greater than the temple, it would have just so angered them. And yet Jesus is, again, what was he trying to show them? Who he was and the authority that he had. Of course, he says another bold statement in verse 8, that the Son of Man, another code word of Jesus is for the Messiah, or the Son of God, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Again, showing that mercy and justice trumps the letter of the law, and that mercy and justice, when coming from the Son of God, the Messiah who has authority, trumps everything. But then he makes a statement that I think might have been even the most cutting. And that's when he does what, what good Christian leaders do in debate. And that is he pulled the, the Bible says, right? He pulled the ultimate, the here's the scripture that lines up to my argument I'm going to make. And he pulls out an Old Testament prophet, Hosea, and he quotes Hosea 6.6. 6. And he says to them, have you not understood what I, what the scriptures mean by, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Now, when Jesus said, says this to them, it's almost like he's saying, you still don't get it. Now, if this sounds familiar to you, it's because, you know what, two chapters back in Matthew 9, Jesus says this to the same leaders, the same religious leaders. In, in Matthew chapter 9, Jesus is at Matthew's house, Matthew is a hated tax collector who Jesus has just called to be his new disciple. And Matthew throws a dinner party for all of his 
friends, and all of his friends are considered by the Jewish community to be sinners, to be scum, to be the marginalized, rejected people that they all never would have associated with. And all of those people were crowded in Matthew's house, hanging out with Jesus. And the religious leaders were judging away and angry, and they were like, what is with your master, with your rabbi, that he's hanging around with the marginalized, with these sinners? And then that's when Jesus says to them, Perhaps you might need to go and understand what the scriptures say when they say, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. So with that, let's continue on and see what else happens to Jesus here. Matthew chapter 12, verse 9. So going from that place, he went into their synagogue and a man with a shriveled hand was there. Looking for a reason to bring charges against Jesus, they asked him, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? He said to them, If any of you has a sheep and it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will you not take hold of it and lift it out? How much more valuable is is a person than a sheep? Therefore, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, Stretch out your hand. So he stretched it out and it was completely restored, just as sound as the other. But the Pharisees went out and plotted how they might kill Jesus. Wow, how angry they were at how Jesus was declaring an upside-down kingdom that was so rattling them. Now, you notice the plot here to get Jesus to accuse Jesus. It's interesting how Jesus almost says to them, you know, you guys have more mercy for animals than people. In fact, that this very thing about I told you earlier they were arguing at that time over how much work were you actually allowed to do to save or rescue people? And they actually were debating whether it was okay to pull a sheep out of a a well. Maybe just leave it, let it die, because it's on the Sabbath and that would be work. And of course, some were like, that's a good thing, and others were like, that's ridiculous, and that was part of what they were fighting about. But anyway, the Pharisees here, these religious leaders, they were being very strategic in trying to corner Jesus And they actually planted this man with the withered hand. You see, here's what they wanted to do. The law allowed to help people who were in dire life or death situations. But if someone was just in a situation where you could help them the next day, then don't do it on the Sabbath. Wait for the next day. So they didn't have someone dying there. They They had someone who had some kind of a skin disease with a withered hand. Not saying it wasn't serious to that person, but it certainly was something that could have been healed the next day or the next week. And so they wanted to set Jesus up. Of course, Jesus doesn't take the bait, right? He heals him on the spot and says, what's right to do on the Sabbath? Is good not right to do on the Sabbath? The other irony that's, that's here is that you notice that Jesus doesn't do any physical act to heal him. It's only his word. Jesus just speaks the word and the man is healed. And Jesus just illustrates so powerfully that he is the one with the authority. He is the king of the kingdom. He is the Lord of the Sabbath. So, so much more to say about that text, but how can we, how can we respond to it today? What is, what can this text say in our context today? You know, we live in, we live in a a religious culture, just like Jesus did. And we live in a secular culture, just like Jesus did. I believe that what this whole series is about is to call us to a kingdom culture, a Jesus culture, 
a culture that has us not settle for either of those two cultures, but to rise above them and be the kind of nation, the kind of people that Jesus is calling us to be. And so I think it's so important in that journey to understand that Jesus is demonstrating his authority as king. And he's the king of the kingdom. He's the king over all our tradition. And Jesus is even king over all of our understanding and interpretation of Scripture. The ultimate authority is Jesus. And I believe we all need to walk in a humility that says, Jesus, we submit our tradition to you. Jesus, we even submit our best attempts at understanding um, and interpreting your, your scripture. We lay all that down and we submit that to Jesus because he's the king of the kingdom. He's the ultimate authority. And my brothers and sisters, I plead with, with all of us as the body of Christ at, in a time when there's so many things that are controversial in both our religious and secular cultures. If we don't walk in this kind of Jesus authority humility, we will fall to more fights divisions, and splits. And oh Lord, let it not be. Let us walk in a humility that says when we submit to the authority of Jesus, we can find our way through. It may not be easy, and there may be some really, really hard discussions and times ahead of things that are controversial. But can we remember who the king of the kingdom is? And can we be humble about our beliefs and our traditions? Sometimes we even have to admit we have them, but we do. We are as steeped in them as these Pharisees. And we need the power of Jesus to break us open in order to be kingdom people, to understand the true kingdom culture that Jesus is calling us to. You know, Jesus wasn't just a rule breaker. Jesus himself modeled living out Sabbath. And I think that's something, too, that we need to see here that's really important. You know, Jesus so modeled the true heart of Sabbath that 11 times in the Gospels, it's recorded that Jesus withdrew. Jesus withdrew to a quiet place to pray and to rest. Jesus took time to rest, to sleep, to pray, to be with the Father. And this is Jesus, the Son of God, who had a very, very short ministry. It would have been very easy for Jesus to have just modeled being a workaholic, being someone who was so tenacious about his mission that he just worked all the time and that's all that mattered. He could have been surrounded by people every moment of the day because there was always a needed someone that wanted him. But that's not what Jesus modeled. Jesus actually modeled God's heart for true Sabbath rest. Jesus withdrew. Jesus valued the sacred rhythms of life, the sacred rhythms of rest, and he modeled them for us. Now, unpacking that is a whole nother sermon. But let me just encourage you, there's some really great books written by great authors about how we can develop rhythms of rest in our lives as followers of Jesus, and I encourage you to look them up. One that I hear a lot of people in our congregation read is a book called Sacred Rhythms by Ruth Haley Barton, and that's highly recommended. But there's ma- again, there's many great books that I encourage you. You know, for us to walk in what Jesus modeled and to walk in this kingdom culture, we do need to develop intentional rhythms of rest in our life. We, have to raise, we, we do have to rise above our culture that, that seems to just overemphasize the idea of, of just hard work and getting ahead and, and idealizing, in a sense, idealizing the workaholic and the successful who work all the time. 
and not necessarily valuing that those that have a balanced life of work and rest, that that's really valuable. That's kingdom culture. And that's what we're called to. But we, we, again, we have to rise above so many cultural norms in order to even value it to live it. You know, one author that I love is a bit of a mentor of mine, even though I've never met him, is Eugene Peterson. He's passed away now, but he's kind of one of my heroes of the faith. But he's a great scholar, he's written many, many books, but he, and he also translated the message translation. That's what he's most known for. But when Eugene Peterson talks about Sabbath rest and how he does rhythms of Sabbath, he talks about it this way, and I love it. He just said, it's praying and playing. And he has such a positive way of inviting us to the heart of God. Remember, Sabbath was not made for rule-keeping. Sabbath was made for God's creation. And so I just love that. It's so simple. That's what he does on his praying and playing. That's the heart of God for rhythms of rest in our lives. You know, Jesus invites us to a rest that comes as a gift and that comes through relationship. So yes, this rest is a gift that he wants to bless us with, but it doesn't just come by, I just stand here and go, whoa, let me get hit with the gift. But it comes as we walk in relationship with Jesus. Because ultimately, relationship with Jesus is the heart of what rest is. And that's what he invites us into that kind of relationship. You know, we all have relationships in our life that drain us. You all know what that's like and don't look at anybody around the room. (laughs) But we also all have relationships in our lives that feed us, that feed our spirit, that make us come alive. That's the kind of relationship with Jesus. Remember, Jesus said, my yoke is light, it's easy. I never put anything on you other than invitation to my heart to my rest, to my way of living that I can teach you and show you. I want to close with this quote that really impacted me this week by an author-scholar named Trish Harrison Warren. And this statement, I've put it out in other places, but it's something for us to really think about. She says this, What if Christians were known as a countercultural community of the well-rested people who embrace our limits with zest and even joy? Just think about that for a moment. What if Christians were known as a countercultural community of the well-rested people who embrace our limits and zest and even with and even joy? I want to encourage us today. I don't know where most of you are at, and yet I know there can be so much weariness. And sometimes that weariness can be completely covered up by all that we've embraced in our culture and in terms of just, just overwork and never thinking that we can value any kind of rhythm, and, rhythm of rest. Did you know that Jesus understood that he had limits, that he had human limitations? Jesus, the Son of God, was also fully human. And he understood that he had limits, and he modeled that for us. What I want to call all of you today is Jesus knows your limits. And you know what? He doesn't condemn you for them. He actually values them and says, I can walk with you with them. I can help you recognize them. I can help you embrace them and even have them be joy in your life so that you can be this community of the well-rested. That's the invitation of Jesus. So I close with Matthew eleven twenty-eight 28 to 30 from the message. 
And let this be our closing prayer. Are you tired? Worn out? Burned out on religion? Come to me. Get away with me and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me and work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me, and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. Then ask the worship team. Oh, the worship team's here. They surprised me and came up behind me. Well, they're going to lead us in a couple songs that will give us an opportunity to respond. And I could probably talk away about how these songs connect, but I'm going to just let the Spirit do that. Because I believe the Spirit is speaking to all of us and calling us to respond today. So I just encourage you in the first song, at a certain point, Lisa may invite you to stand. But, it, but it's okay for the, however long for you to just stay seated and pray. And just ask the Spirit of God, what are you saying, speaking to me today about? What do I need to let go of or bring before you? What are you inviting me to? And allow the beautiful words of these songs to bring you into his presence and to respond to the Spirit of God. So Spirit of God, we invite you to speak. Give us open hearts. Lift the scales from our eyes. Lift the hardness of our hearts. Speak to us. Teach us about your unforced rhythms of grace. Let us know our limits are okay and that your grace and love and mercy, that mercy triumphs over judgment. Do your work among us. We submit ourselves to you. In Jesus' name we pray.